Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a great God who speaks and that you have spoken to us through your word in the Bible and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand what you are saying to us tonight. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Evidence is an important thing, isn't it? Um, without evidence, a car mechanic can't repair your car. A doctor can't diagnose and remedy an illness. A lawyer can't build a case and a detective can't solve a crime. Sherlock Holmes, one of the greatest of all fictional detectives, was particularly fond of evidence. Uh, dressed in his deerstalker hat, accompanied by his sidekick, Dr. Watson, and armed with a magnifying glass, he would painstakingly hunt for clues and gather evidence to solve mysteries and uncover the truth. And for those of you not familiar with Sherlock Holmes and his methods, um, you can always go to uh, the Sherlock Holmes Museum on uh, 221 Baker Street. I was there yesterday. Um, but uh, if, you, if you can't get there, for whatever reason, here are a few quotes from uh, Sherlock Holmes novels and short stories by uh, the author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to give you a flavour. I am the last and highest court of appeal of detection. That's Sherlock Holmes from the, the novel The Sign of Four. The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. That's from uh, the, the very famous The Hound of the Baskervilles. I never guess. It is a shocking habit, destructive to the logical faculty. Another, another Holmes quote from The Sign of Four. How about this exchange uh, between Inspector Gregory and Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of the Silver Blaze? Is there any point to which you would wish to draw my attention? Inspector Gregory asked Sherlock Holmes. To the curious incident of the dog in the night time, said Holmes. The dog did nothing in the night time, replied Gregory. That was the curious incident, remarked Sherlock Holmes. So um, I went to a play called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night a few years ago. I still don't know what that means, so if anybody uh, does understand it, please come and uh, see me afterwards. Um, here's another, here's a couple of others. It's an old maxim of mine that when you have excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And that's Sherlock Holmes from the Beryl, the Beryl Coronet. Data, 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 Holmes cried impatiently. I can't make bricks without clay. That's from the adventure of the Copper Beaches. I listen to their story, they listen to my comments, and then I pocket my fee. And that's from A Study in Scarlet. He sounds a bit more like a lawyer there than a detective, I always think. I confess that I have been blind as a mole, but it is better to learn wisdom late than never to learn it at all. And that's from The Man with the Twisted Lip. And finally, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And that's uh, from the novel A Scandal in Bohemia. So enough, enough of Sherlock Holmes, uh, but you, you get the drift. 
He was obsessed with gathering data and evidence. And that last quote about it being a capital mistake to theorize before one has data is particularly relevant for us tonight as it's similar to the accusation that uh, contemporary atheists, uh, professors Richard Dawkins and A.C. Grayling, level at people who believe in God. Faith, they say, is believing without any evidence. Faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence, to quote Richard Dawkins from his book, The Selfish Gene. And both Dawkins and Grayling use the account of Jesus meeting with Thomas in support of their contention. They claim that when Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, Jesus is effectively asking us to believe without any evidence. Is this right? Or is it a misunderstanding of the passage of the likes of Dawkins and Grayling taking a verse out of context and effectively misrepresenting biblical Christianity. Well, spoiler alert, spoiler alert and you may not be surprised to know that I actually think that they, ha Dawkins and Grayling have got this wrong, and we'll, uh, we'll come back to that a little later. But before we look at the passage more closely, just a little bit of a historical context for it. Jesus has been tried by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and uh, an encounter that we heard about preached in our sermon last Sunday. He's been crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose again. The risen Christ has appeared to Mary Magdalene and then to all the disciples who are locked in a room together apart from Thomas, who wasn't with them at the time. Now let's, let's pick up now. Um, at the, uh, with the first section, which is Thomas's demand for the evidence in verses 24 to 25. Let me just read those verses for us again. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side... I will not believe it. But Thomas has seen Jesus being crucified and is simply not willing to accept the eyewitness evidence of his friends that Jesus has risen from the dead. He wants more than eyewitness evidence. He's effectively asking for irrefutable proof. And, and he lays down a challenge or an ultimatum Three conditions that need to be fulfilled before he will believe. Never mind what you lot are saying, he seems to be saying, Thomas. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers there, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. It's not so much a case of seeing is believing, for Thomas. It's more a case of seeing, touching, and feeling is believing. It's interesting that Thomas has earned the nickname Doubting Thomas, although uh, I'm not sure that's the best nickname for him. His approach goes beyond doubting, doesn't it? Thomas is willfully refusing even to entertain his doubts. It's almost, it's almost like he's banishing them. 
It's more a case of willful or refusing Thomas, although uh, admittedly they don't have quite the same ring. Now let's look at uh, Jesus' response in verses 26 to 28. Let me read them for us. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, but this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. It's noteworthy that Jesus was able to stand amongst them even though the doors were locked and also that uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus was aware of, of Thomas's demand for proof even without seemingly being told. The narrative it does not say how either of these things happened but there's a strong sense of the miraculous of Christ's supernatural power and omniscience. So Jesus provides Thomas with the evidence he's, he's asked for and gently rebukes or chides him at the same time. Now stop doubting and believe. Or in the words of another translation, the uh, English Standard Version, do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So we're not told if, uh, if Thomas did in fact touch Jesus or whether just seeing him being with him in the same room was enough. But we are told of Thomas's response, which is immediate and unequivocal. My Lord and my God. Not great moral teacher or dear political leader, Thomas responded in the only rational way he could when given the evidence he had demanded. He recognized the risen Jesus as God. My Lord and my God. It is, of course, true that the vast majority of Christians throughout history have become Christians without literally touching or seeing Jesus. Jesus said something very important about this in verse 29. Let me just read it for us again. Then Jesus told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does Jesus mean by this? The disciples all saw Jesus and believed. Is Jesus asking the rest of us to believe in him without any evidence, as Richard Dawkins and A.C. Grayling claim? As an aside, uh, I, was, I was lucky enough to hear A.C. Grayling speak a few years ago. I was working for the accountancy firm PwC at the time, and they used to support a number of different faith networks, um, including the PwC Christian Network, which I belong to. Um, they used to run, the PwC Christian Network used to run various events and invited various speakers to attend them. We even had the Archbishop of Canterbury one time, which was, uh, which was great. And uh, there was also a PwC Humanist Network, uh, and they laid on an event with A.C. Grayling as the guest speaker so I decided to go, I, um, I registered. Uh, I was curious to find out what a humanist believes. I did feel a bit of a fraud turning up as a, as a Christian. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not sure I came away any the wiser, 
if I'm honest, but it was a, a thrill to hear AC Grayling speak, and the, um, and the canapes were marvelous. But, uh. Anyway, coming back to the question, what does Christ mean when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed? Let's look at the next couple of verses to see if they help. Verses 30 to 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs that are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus is describing two groups of people, those who've seen Jesus, which includes the disciples, and those who haven't literally seen him, a group that includes the vast majority of Christians, including ourselves. Jesus is not asking those who've not literally seen him to believe without any evidence. He's asking us to believe based on a different kind of evidence. We don't get to see and touch Jesus, but we do have the eyewitness evidence of those who did. It's really the same way that we come to believe in any historical person or event. John Lennox professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford is another, another professor that I've heard speak on a couple of occasions and can highly recommend. Here's how John Lennox puts it in his book Against the Flow. In the very nature of things there will be differences in the kinds of evidence given to different people at different times. For instance, the earliest disciples of Jesus were eyewitnesses of his life, death and resurrection. Those millions of others like myself who come later rely on their testimony as well as our own personal experience of course which will differ significantly from theirs. Lennox continues, we should note in passing that some contemporary atheists like A.C. Grayling have used the story of Thomas to buttress their contention that faith means believing without evidence. He takes Jesus to be saying blessed are those who have no evidence and yet have believed. This is an astonishing conclusion for a philosopher whose stock in trade is the analysis of the logic of argument. The point Jesus is making is that not everyone has the evidence of physical sight, but physical sight is not the only kind of evidence. The very next statement in John's Gospel points out what that evidence is. The John's record of Jesus' signs or miracles, including critically his resurrection from the dead, constitute good evidence on which faith can be based. And that is, of course, John's express stated purpose in writing his gospel account, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And finally, a word on what it means to have life in his name. It's not spelled out in this passage, but John has spoken of it previously in his gospel, chapter 17, verse 3. Let me just read it for us. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life in his name is a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a relationship which starts when you first believe, when you first place your trust in him, it survives death and lasts for all eternity. It's what we're all made for, and it's wonderful. It's like coming home. 
So if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here tonight, what will you do with this evidence? Are you prepared to examine it and to go where it leads, like Sherlock Holmes, the great detective, would have done? Or do you hold to a worldview that says that the resurrection is impossible and just leave it at that? Resurrection seems as implausible to us as it did to our first century forebears like Thomas. But if there is a God who created the universe, who made something from nothing, who caused the big bang to go bang, who brought life to lifeless matter, if there is such a God, then we cannot exclude the possibility of miracles. The one who authored the laws of nature in the first place can surely intervene when he chooses and bring the dead back to life. I have a good friend uh, who thinks the resurrection is impossible. Uh, when I asked him if he'd read the evidence for Jesus' life, death and resurrection in the gospel accounts, he said no, but he knew what they said. So if that's you, please, please don't assume anything. Even professors like A.C. Grayling can get it wrong. Please do read these accounts for yourself and be prepared to go wherever they lead. And if you're a Christian here tonight, be encouraged that your faith is backed by evidence, that it stands up to examination and scrutiny. Be confident to share it with family members friends, colleagues, who may not yet have engaged with the eyewitness evidence for Jesus. There are great things at stake. It's not just about getting your theology right or being able to have nice conversations with your vicar, nice though they are. It's about being in relationship with God, a relationship we were all made for that survives death and lasts for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are Lord of all. Um, we thank you that you are a majestic and gracious God, that you sent your Son to die for us, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have caused the account of his life, death, and resurrection to be recorded for us as evidence that we might believe and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing gift of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.